Good morning, young disciples. It's so great to be here with you today. Yesterday, I was in Montana, and now I'm here. It's a long way to Montana, let me tell you. And the day before, I was in Spokane, Washington. So anyway, that's, that's my life, not, not very interesting to you. Well, actually today, remember last week I showed you a picture of Riley and Pebbles? Today, Riley didn't make the cut, and I had to bring a special guest children's sermon speaker, my wife Carrie, and she's going to come up and tell you the story about Pebbles and the junkyard. Okay, this is Carrie. It's nice to see all of you. Welcome. So my name's Carrie, and you can see up there, you can see, who is that again, that dog? Right, that's Pebbles. Here's, here's a secret about Pastor Randy. Pastor Randy is very, very attached to his dog, Pebbles. I love Pebbles, and Pebbles loves me, but Pastor Randy and Pebbles really love each other. And they have not been happy to be separated all this time. So that's something to know about Pastor Randy. <laughs> And on a one-time basis, because dogs don't really belong in church, but one time we're bringing Pebbles so you can meet her. Do you like her? Yeah. Pretty cute, huh? Okay, so see that? Can you guys see that junkyard picture next to Pebbles? Yeah. Do you know what a junkyard is? Yeah. What's, yeah. True trash and stuff that people don't use, and sometimes broken cars and big old garbage trucks come in and out, and they're really noisy, and stuff is crashing around, and it's just yucky. Would you like to live in a junkyard? No. Guess who was born in a junkyard? Pebbles. Pebbles' mother lives in that junkyard, and they can't catch her. They keep trying to catch her and they can't. But they catch the puppies after they're born. She keeps having puppies in the junkyard. It's delightful. And so <laughs> some of the lucky puppies have rescue people, rescue humans, who come and get them. And then people like Pastor Randy and me are looking for dogs to take home and we become the rescue people. And Pebbles is called a rescue dog. So imagine living in a junkyard. It's really scary and loud, and it's hard to find food, and you're just afraid all the time, and then somebody rescues you and takes you out of there and takes you to a nice house and gives you food and pets you and in some cases lets you sleep in their bed. <laughs> <clears throat> Not everybody does that, but some people do that. That makes the dogs so happy because they're safe. Well, guess what? That's what God wants to do for us. When we're afraid or scared or, or it's hard to, um, hard things happen, like what happens to the dogs in the junkyard, or even things like when your heart is kind of mean and cranky and grouchy and you're having trouble 
stopping being grouchy and mean, God wants to come rescue us and help us with that. And that's what Pastor Randy's going to talk about to the grown-ups today. So think about that. Think about what it would be like to be in a junkyard and have somebody rescue you. That's the kind of rescuing that God wants to do with us, whatever we need. Yes. Can they pet pebbles? Okay, but is everybody going to pet pebbles? when we? Oh, thank you. That's up to me. You know, here, here's what I think we should do. Why don't you get her, open her, and then as we walk by, everybody can gently pat pebbles, okay? One time, this is your pebble petting experience. All right. I'm going to say a prayer real quick, okay? God, we thank you for dogs. We thank you for petting dogs. We thank you for rescuing us and your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you guys. One pet, and then we go. Mm-hmm. Here we go. You, you, you take her. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to move this. Thank you. All right, while they're doing that, and the children can go now to their Sunday school with their teachers. All right. All right, well, it's great to be here, and it's really great to have Carrie here, and we're here now. We're we're not, no more traveling. (laughs) Um, Well, I think Carrie covered the human condition pretty well with the kids, but we're going to talk about it a little bit. As we get into chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul is turning from his prayer for the Ephesians. Remember that long prayer, all one sentence, 15 to 23 of chapter 1. And now in the opening verses, the first 10 verses of chapter 2, Paul is going to give us a concise summary of this message of salvation, of rescue, the gospel message. This is the Cliff Notes version of Romans, okay? So if you don't really want to spend a lot of time reading Romans, I, I recommend Romans, but these 10 verses summarize the entire gospel message. Cliff Notes. The first part talks about the problem that all of us have of being alienated from God. Then the second part of Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 10 tells us about the actions that God has taken to deal with our alienation. And then the last three verses, 8 to 10, give us God's solution to our sin problem. So let's Let's look at that first section, those first opening verses. Paul repeats a word, you, you, and he goes on to say us. And he's using a word here in Greek that is not very well translated into English because when you hear the word you, you think it's about you, the individual. But this is what my Mississippi grandmother used to say, y'all, it's inclusive, it's all of us all of humanity, all of the Ephesians that Paul is talking to. You all were dead in your transgressions transgressions and sin. 
You see, God created us in his image to have eternal fellowship with him. But then sin entered the world. And because we were born into that sin, something essential to our humanity is dead. We are no longer fully human, fully alive before God. We're dead, Paul says. We're separated from God. He goes on, and it's what you used to live in when you were following the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. See, Paul in these opening verses of chapter 2 is drawing a picture of the world in which we live in our deadness. And there are two parts to it. First, if you take people who are dead in their transgressions and sins and you set them loose, you give them freedom, they do a lot of wonderful things, but they also over time create a world that is apart from God. And so you can look at the daily news and you can say that's because for centuries we've been building a world that's apart from God. The ways of this world, the systems of thought and politics and economics, the personal and corporate and societal relationship all reflect, sadly, the deadness of our human condition. Now, we don't have to look very far to see the reality of this in our own lives and in our society. Of course it's broken. It's a tragic, horrible thing. Well, Tom Holland, an agnostic philosopher, used to write compelling histories of the ancient Greeks and Romans. But he observed that their societies were rife with casual, socially accepted cruelty towards the weak. Rape was was a pandemic. Sexual abuse toward the massive slave class was an unquestioned way of life, and the mass extermination of enemies a matter of course. That was the Greco-Roman world into which Paul was writing. All you had to do, this is yesterday's three top stories. It's about the fires in the West. It's about the rise of the Delta variant. You know what the news is. That's the world that we live in. But there's more going on than meets the eye. Paul talks about this power in the air. And he's really talking about the devil himself. Satan amplifies our sin. Now, Paul's going to go into much more detail about that in chapter 6. He's going to talk about how the ruler of this world has been influencing the world to go down this path of destruction that it's already hell-bent on. And because of Satan's deception and his temptation skills, and because of the very lostness of who we are, this is the sad world that we've got. That's the description Paul gives of the Gentiles, and you can read the longer version in the opening chapters of Romans. But notice he doesn't let himself or us off the hook. In verse 3, he speaks of all of us. He includes Jews like himself who should have known better. The chosen people have given in to sin. He says, all of us lived among them, among people that were living in this world of deadness, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. So what he's really saying here is if we Jews are just like the rest of you, God has chosen us. He's manifested his presence. He's given us the law and the prophets. 
But despite all of those gifts, we decided, speaking of the Jews, to live for ourselves anyway, just like the rest of humanity, and we were objects of God's wrath. All humanity, that's, that's Paul's understanding of the human condition. The world, the world system and philosophy of life that humanity has inherited and, and has developed over centuries, and second, the sinful nature, our own natural desires, and third, Satan himself. That trio of evil influences appears through the scriptures. It explains the narrative of human history, of every nation, every culture, and every tribe. The church is not exempt from this. Individual churches fail. Entire denominations as well can go astray. The classic example of this is in Western history, is in 16th century Europe. Now, there are lots of reasons why the Protestant Reformation started almost 500 years ago. The fact that the Bible was only available in Latin and services were conducted in Latin rather than in the language of people's hearts, the language that people spoke every day. The church was also consumed with its own power and wealth and was dismissive of the very people they were called to serve. Sin was reigning in the world and in the church with horrific consequences. And the church was so corrupted that it was barely able to keep alive the light, the good news of salvation. So when Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, on October 31st, 1517, there was discontent in the populace already. The Pope then decided to build the magnificent St. Peter's Cathedral. And don't get me wrong, it is beautiful. I've been there. I've gotten the tour of the underground crypt where St. Peter is said to be buried. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. But the way it was built was by basically conning people into giving their hard-earned money. One of the marketing concepts in the fundraising campaign for that cathedral used something that we now know that they called at the time, Luther called indulgences. Indulgences were were marketed to the people in the pews. In the sermons, you would, hear, you would hear about indulgences, not about the free gift of God's grace. And the purchase of the indulgence was supposed to lead to the forgiveness of sin. It's like buying a get-out-of-jail-free card. Now, that was bad enough, but they also advertised you could buy an indulgence to help a loved one who had died to escape purgatory and to enter into heaven. That's a false promise. It was then, it is now. Buying an indulgence to help the pendulum swing in the judgment of your loved one who was sitting in purgatory, it, it, it was an oppressive doctrine. There was a priest named Tetzel who went from town to town and sold indulgences with his pithy little slogan, for every coin that in the coffer rings a soul from purgatory springs. It's very catchy. It caught on. <laughs> But it's not true. It's not true. And Luther saw that. He was appalled. He had a deep sense of the injustice of selling these indulgences to people who were barely able to put food on the table. 
And he said, he discovered this as he began to read the scriptures again, that you can't buy forgiveness, you can't buy your way into heaven, but people didn't know that because the scriptures were originally in Greek and Hebrew and they'd only been translated into Latin. And nobody spoke Latin but the priests and the educated. So there was no way for the average parishioner that Luther had grown up with in Germany to know that the church was wrong. And Luther spent, he dedicated his life to translating the entire Bible from Hebrew and Greek into German. The, Germ the Luther Bible shaped German language and culture for all of history. Germany and world history was forever changed by Luther. The printing press was invented right about this time, and pretty soon Luther's sermons were being printed, and people were reading them in German, and it started a revolution. Now, Luther's personal story was also very compelling. He, had be, he was a monk who often fell into deep bouts of depression. He was overwhelmed by his own guilt. He wondered how God could possibly love him and how he could be absolved of his guilt. And in that struggle, he turned to the letters of Paul, especially Romans and Galatians and Ephesians. So let's look at the next slide and see the words that set Luther free. But because of his great love, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is good news. It's incredible news. Out of his rich and merciful heart, God did three things. He made us alive with Christ he raised us with Christ, and he seated us in the heavenly realms with Christ. First, we were dead, and now we're alive. The core of who we are that died because of the sin has been transformed and made alive with Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. That's, what, that's the message that captured my mind and heart as a freshman in college. Secondly, God raised us from the muck that human sin had created. He raised us up out of that with the same power that rose Jesus from the dead that we looked, talked about last week. And third, he seated us with Christ in the heavenly realm so that what is true about Christ is true about us. When Paul says heavenly realms, he means the spiritual kingdom of God that we're now a part of for eternity. Now, this isn't someplace far off in the cosmos that we're transported to in some disembodied state. It simply means that we are forgiven. We are cleansed by this, the blood of Christ and united with God. All the fullness of the kingdom of God has been restored to us. And we're part of the very life of God, the triune God. Now, God did this for us, for all who will respond to the good news. And the reason he did it is very important. It was that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness 
in Christ Jesus. Now, what's Paul talking about there? Even though God has reached down into the mess of our world to rescue people through Christ's work, let's be frank, the world's still a mess. There are days and weeks and months and years and centuries that it looks like the kingdom of God is losing. It seems like evil is winning. It seems like the world is just getting worse. And the whole thing is just sometimes overwhelming. Where is God in this world? Well, that's another sermon from probably the book of Habakkuk. We might touch on Job while I'm here. That's another sermon. That is part of the good news, though. Because Paul is saying, wait, God's work has begun. It's not over yet. Don't give up before the end. Don't give up. One day, everyone is going to see just how good and kind and gracious God was and is because his work will be finished and the kingdom will be fully established and a new heavens and a new earth. Let's go on. Paul concludes these opening verses with these incredible words that we all know. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. This verse became the theme of the Reformation. Grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone, the other solas of the Reformation. You see, the Roman Catholic Church had fallen into a rut. It, it, don't, don't blame, don't look at the Roman Catholic Church today. Full of problems, yes, but nothing as corrupt as what it was then. People, everyone believed that salvation was to be earned by obedience to God's law. And the main role that the religious authorities of the day took was to interpret the, the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, to tell people to stop disobeying God, offer sacrifices. You know what? Jesus had already overturned that whole system. He came preaching the gospel of God, the gospel of the kingdom. He helped his disciples see that here's what the Old Testament actually taught. Let's look at Deuteronomy 30. Now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. No, nor is it beyond the sea so you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it. No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. That's Moses. That's the gospel. It was there all along. Yes, in Jesus Christ, the fullness of the gospel is explained. But God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus basically restored the true meaning of the law and the prophets. He taught people to pay attention to the the heart of the law. And even more importantly, he taught that his heavenly father loved people and wanted to be in relationship with them. He told parables. 
about God being the shepherd who went after the one lost sheep. He left the 99 that were safe and sound to search for the one who was lost and restore that lost lamb to the fold. He told the parable of the prodigal son about God restoring that relationship. God runs out to meet the prodigal son and welcomes him home and kills the fatted calf. That's the God that Moses revealed. That's the God of Jesus Christ. That's the God that we worship every Sunday in church and in our own private times. The Apostle John put it like this, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever lives and believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God didn't send his son to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. See, when Paul began preaching this gospel to the Gentiles, he had to face a big problem. Everyone thought this message was basically Judaism 2.0. And the Gentiles thought, well, we'll have to become like Jews. We'll have to get circumcised for the men. We'll have to practice the Jewish customs. And Paul, you know what his answer was? No. At the right time, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, the ungodly. By grace, you have been saved through faith alone. In every age, we keep slipping back into legalism. We keep forgetting what Jesus and Luther, Calvin, St. Augustine, the Reformers fought so hard to recover the actual gospel. It's so easy. I talk to people all the time who really in their heart of hearts think of God as a demanding, judgmental God who just is waiting to punish us for every time we blow it. There is something inside our sinful hearts that pushes us into legalism and guilt trips and impossible expectations. We're tempted to believe a lie that God can't possibly love us unless we do enough for him. So free, unmerited grace, amazing grace, we're going to sing that later, just sounds like one of those advertising promises that's too good to be true. But we persist in this belief in our darkest moments that God is out to get us. That's just not true. The core truth that Paul and Luther recovered is that God is love. The God who claims us in baptism never wavers in his love for us. We're saved by the free gift of God's grace through Jesus Christ. We are chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Period. Receive it by faith. There's a wonderful catechism, which you probably uh, know. It's the Heidelberg Catechism, and it came out of Luther's Germany in 1563. This is the very first question. Let's just read, read it together. What is your only comfort in life and in death, that I belong body and soul in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who at the cost of his own blood has fully paid for all my sins and has completely freed me from the dominion of the devil, that he protects me so well 
that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that everything must fit his purpose for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Folks, we belong to Jesus Christ, body and soul, in life and in death. That, that sounds like a great conclusion to a catechism, but that's the first question because it's fundamental, it's foundational. We must always begin with this truth, and I'm going to remind you of it because we keep forgetting. I have a personal story that is a powerful reminder of how powerful this Reformation truth is. In Germany, there's, there's an area in the uh, middle, medieval uh, period that was called the Palatine area. And it, it jumped into Luther's uh, message and converted to the Protestant faith quickly. And it became a place of refuge for refugees fleeing parts of Europe where they were persecuted for believing this catechism. And my 12th great-grandparents, Jacob and Catherine Baer, were Mennonites. They fled their home in the countryside outside of Zurich to escape persecution for their faith. In 2008, when I was on sabbatical, Carrie and I were able to go to that house. It's still standing. It's owned by Catholics, but it's still standing. I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter. They went to Luther's Germany and found refuge and rebuilt their lives. But Germany began to fall into great conflict, and, and this is part of our American story as well, because my descendants, the Bears, continued their journey. And in 1749, they boarded the good ship Priscilla, and they landed in Philadelphia Harbor. And they were welcomed by William Penn into what is now Pennsylvania. There they found freedom to worship according to these Reformation and biblical convictions. Friends, we have so much to be thankful for. There is no time to waste on guilt, on legalism. Everything we do should be done in grateful response to what God has done for us. Because what God has assured us of eternal life, we can now wholeheartedly be willing and ready to live for him every day. There's a slight catch here in this text from Ephesians. He goes on to say, we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared to be our way of life. See, God created us for this, for good works, to do the things that he has prepared for us, to use the gifts that he has given us to make a difference in our world, to build the kingdom together. He wants us to give gladly and generously of our possessions, to advance the kingdom. He wants us to joyfully give our time and energy to build his kingdom in our vocation, in our community, our neighborhood, and through the ministries of this congregation. He wants us to live a life that is pleasing to him and in accordance with his plan. But he gives us the power that raised Jesus from the dead to do all that. That's the good news. We're saved by grace through faith. 
I'll close with this story. Carrie's grandfather was a Presbyterian pastor. He was born in 1894. And after seminary, he graduated in 1923, he pastored churches all over Northern California until he died preaching at the age of 49. He was inspired by the stories about Sheldon Jackson, who was the pioneer that brought this church to Boulder, the great church planner in the West. And today, we visited all of them. There are churches all over in these little lumber towns in far northern California that Harold Morehouse planted. He was a Presbyterian church planter. Can you believe it? They actually exist. He's a fascinating guy. He grew up in North Hollywood, uh, went to seminary in San Anselmo, but his parents had emigrated to California from Texas. It's the other thing is happening now where Californians are moving to Texas and Colorado, apparently. But he, they went to, to find new opportunities in California. And his grandparents had emigrated from Scotland to Texas. So Grandpa Harold was a real Scottish Presbyterian. I'm sure he played the bagpipe. I wish I'd known him. He died in 1945. But to Grandpa Harold, Ephesians 2 verse 8 was the starting and ending point of the gospel. He believed it was the key to understanding the Bible. It was always in his mind and heart. And we know this because Carrie and I were able to visit the last church that he pastored in Healdsburg, California, and meet some of the very elderly parishioners who had, he had pastored when they were children. Pastor Harold is still bearing witness to this good news. By grace, we have been saved through faith. Grace, amazing grace, is what rescues us, redeems us, sanctifies us. There may be someone here or online right now hearing these words who hasn't given their allegiance to this good, gracious God. There's no time like the present to do that. In fact, we're having a baptism service on August 15th, and we would love to meet with you and tell you this story and help you to meet this God. Grace is going to not only transform us, but our sinful world. And one day there will be a new heavens, a new earth, no more tears, no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering, no more pandemics. No more conflict. God is at work. This is going to happen. But for now, remember the promise of Jesus. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you for your grace, marvelous grace. Grace that enters into the muck of our lives and the muck of this world. Thank you that you have a plan. We don't understand. It's a mystery that you're revealing. We know we see in a glass darkly, but we know your promise that one day we will see it all face to face with you. And we thank you for those saints like Grandpa Harold and many others that are in our memories who are now with you awaiting the consummation of all things. Thank you that your plan is good. 
that your gospel is powerful. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.